Hello and welcome to The Film File, episode 37, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. Brought to you by our sponsor, The Devil T-Shirt Company, for high quality t-shirts with a unique original design, then you need a devil t-shirt. I have mine. I've got mine. You get yours. At the end of the show, we'll give you an exclusive 10% off your first order. But before that, there's this. Hi, I'm Lee Ford. I'm Andy Meekin. And thank you for joining us on this, our 37th show. This week, we'll be looking at our Bill and Ted Face the Music review. My Oscars pick challenge of Hannah and her sisters. What's coming up on all the streaming platforms. And I'll be giving a mention to one of the films on the streaming platforms, The Devil All the Time. But first, Andy, how have you been? Uh, well, um, as some people who follow us online will have realised today, I'm actually in quite a good mood because today is the third year anniversary of me putting a bad part of my life behind me. Yes, I know. I won't go to um, dwell too much on it, but yeah, it's good to see you at your present position. It's been, uh, well, it's been beneficial to you and beneficial to your state of mind, I think is the best way to put it. Yeah, it's, it, it, I, I went from a toxic work environment that I could have stayed with and just ploughed through after 16 years of working there, but I didn't like the direction that the company and the people who work there were going in. And um, I took that break for freedom without any job lined up and it paid off because three months later I started in my current position and I've loved it ever since. That's good. So th this time of year is always when I see that pop up on my memories feeds on Facebook, it reminds me of like, wow, this is how far you've come. And I'm hoping as ever when it gets to this part of the program that you have a little something for a segment that we call The News. Andy, have you got any news for us? I've got a little something for you. <laughs> yes, Should I, we do a musical episode? Because they were really big, <laughs> weren't they, a few years back? Started with Buffy and you had to do a musical yeah, We'll episode. just do a random musical one. We'll write out like all the news in like rhymic, rhymic format and like put yeah. a beat behind it. It'd yeah, be awesome. A musical episode <laughs> coming soon. But on a serious note, let's start with our usual like look at what's happening with film shuffles, etc. within the industry. Still a thing, I notice. The biggest speculation over the past week is the question, are Marvel and Disney going to move Black Widow, and is Soul going to make a move as well? And with the Soul one, we called it. The speculation we is exactly it. what we called all those months ago. It's been speculated that it's going to drop straight onto Disney Plus. Now, this is speculation. I will. I can't stress the word speculation enough because while some sites are reporting it as though it's fact, there's still nothing confirmed. It's just industry insider gossip from uns unsubstantiated rumor mongers. Uh, Disney apparently are weighing their options right now, and I'd imagine they would be, because Mulan hasn't performed as spectacularly as they hoped, particularly in the Chinese market, which we'll get to in a little bit. Soul, you may recall, we speculated as going to Disney Plus anyway. The lack of marketing and promotion around that film when it's only a couple of months away kind of has been constantly hinting that this isn't going to stay the course. Yeah, for a big Pixar release, there's there's been very little very little chatter about it. The shame on this is that because of the storyline of Soul, and it's very re it resonates with black culture to now just drop it onto Disney Plus or move it into next year, whilst we're in a Black Lives Matter kind of world, this that, this is going to be a hard move for Disney to make. I think they should still stick the cinema release. 
I think they should make a big thing of it and really put some money into promoting it at this point in time. We need something like this. We need a good Pixar film. We need something eye-opening and heartfelt. But if they do move it to Disney+, Plus, they need to play it really carefully how they do it. If they move it to Disney+, Plus with a Mulan price tag of £20 per, tick, per um, streaming subscription, I think they're going to get a lot of backward flack. Well, as we mentioned last week, when we looked at Mulan, we noticed that their expectation for Mulan was, was very low. It's not done particularly well in China. It's not done particularly well against the streaming service. Yeah, in, in China, it's um, had a 72% drop-off on its second week to make only $6.5 million this week, which takes the total there to $36.2 million. And if you remember when we said about how they were going to be doing the, the streaming on demand, then the Chinese market would be their huge focus because obviously they were expected to make huge numbers over there. It's severely underwhelmed. And the video on demand figures, there's speculation online. Uh, with one analyst has speculated the film has actually made quite a sizable haul on the Disney Plus streaming service. However, other analysts are wondering where they've tracked the data from, given that Disney have been coy about revealing anything. So any figures that you see about how much Disney Plus have made through this, it's just outside of speculation. There's no official figures. All that we know is that of the cinemas that they targeted, the film didn't perform. It's interesting because for a film that's been so well-reviewed, it's also been incredibly tainted by everything that's gone around it. And if it had just had a cinema release, uh, yes, there was a little bit of backlash in China, but I think it would have, it would have fared better. I would have had a much more positive response, and I think people would have uh, uh, embraced it in a way that they're not doing at the moment. Black Widow might move. That's been expected to move. I hope not, because it's going to make it'll have a knock-on effect towards all of the Marvel Studio films and every other blockbuster film next year that has to shuffle around the release date windows as everything's crushing together. I think that the cinemas need something. If they want, if they want, and we've speculated this, why not just do it to Disney Plus for the people who want to pay that extra for it, but also release it at the cinemas for the people who want to experience it on the big screen because there is a market for people who want to go to the cinema. Yes, there is. And we've been championing that with our, um, our hashtag save our hashtag, cinemas. Hashtag save our cinemas. We'll talk about this a little bit later, but if you are... A cinephile, if, you, if cinema is true and close to your heart, then really pursue going to see anything other than just the blockbusters because they're, they aren't out there right now and they need you to go to the cinema and support local film. Yeah, when, when you've got small films like Rocks, um, which the good Dr. Commode absolutely raved about, uh, it's a coming-of-age drama which uses actual teens playing the roles in there and it was very much improvised around the script so that it feels real and believable. Loads of prestigious like comments getting thrown at it. It's, it's going to be touting for awards. And that's out there. This is the kind of film that once it comes to next year and it drops on a streaming service, you'll watch and go, oh, why did I miss this when it was out? So don't miss it. Go and see it while it's at the cinema. While there's no big blockbusters, appreciate the smaller films. You'll open your eyes to a world of marvellous cinema entertainment. Things that Martin Scorsese would turn around and say, that cinema. Yeah, absolutely. We have to... I wrote something on Twitter last week, which is once these venues have gone, and whether that's cinemas, uh, music venues, theatres, comedy clubs, once they're gone, they're gone. There's no going back. There's no putting the genie back in the bottle. It's it's up to us, every one of us who, who believe in cinema, who love cinema, who love movies, to to do our best to, to populate uh, uh, the, the theatres again. 
and to hashtag save our cinemas. Please it's a very do. important hashtag. Please use it wherever you can yeah. manage to squeeze it into anything. Yeah, this is not something that we've been flippant about. With, with only 70% of cinemas still open in the US and the closed ones being in the key areas of New York, San Francisco and LA, the studios are still hesitant to be first out the gate with big films. The figures for Tenet in the US have now been revealed and it's only scraped 36 million so far in the States. Which when you think it's got a budget over speculation of 300 million, it's got a lot of work to do. It's been said that it needs to pass 400 million worldwide in order to be considered just scraping profitability. Internationally, it's made 214 million so far, which brings it to 250 million worldwide. So it's not out the question because even though it's only made 36 million in the States, the drop-offs week on week have been less than 30% each week, which is a pretty good drop-off. So it shows that it's got sustained business, but it's just not got the market at this point in time over there. And we said this last week, uh, studios have got to now recognise that you can't just have a big opening weekend and then if the film slouches off, it's written off as a, as a disappointment and a box office disaster. It's got to go back to the old days where time in a cinema meant that a film can grow, a film can find an audience and a film can, can win back its budget without too much worry. I think we've got to reconsider yeah. how we consider box office success. Films need to be allowed to breathe a bit because sometimes it takes a bit of word of mouth. And at this point in time, the word of mouth needed isn't just, oh, that film's good or, oh, that film's worth seeing. It's also, oh, actually, that cinema that I went to felt like a safe environment. Yes, absolutely. that's the word that needs to get out to the people who are still hesitant to go back to the cinema. As someone who you know goes to the cinema and goes, actually, they did this, they did this. There was hand cleaning stations everywhere. They were really like, like careful about like contact. Blah blah blah. That's what word needs to get out. So let the films have the chance to breathe. No Time to Die seems to be the only film that is determined to stick its release date of mid November. You know why? But given the Bond films always perform better internationally in the Europe and Chinese markets than they do in the US anyway, it makes perfect sense because it's more Bond. Because it's Bond. Bond can Bond do it. Bond can do it. Yeah, I mean, the US market, obviously it takes a good bit of money in the US usually, but not a patch on what it does internationally. Yeah, it's and not so the dominant why... figure for, for, for uh, Bond box office at all. So that's why the, the more confidence that because cinemas are open across Europe, because cinemas are open through China, it's worth sticking to it. Uh, speaking of Bond. Yes, well, we were just discussing this before we started recording. There's uh, rumours and speculation on the next casting, as there always is. However, now it appears that a load of people are jumping on the bandwagon to say that this casting is confirmed, even though it came from yet another unnamed, unreliable source. Which is that Bond is going to be played after Daniel Craig by Tom Hardy. I could feel the disdain in your voice. <laughs> I'm in. Uh, I'm not even in the same room as you. I can. I could. I can see the disdain across the wire. <laughs> I'm telling you, frost just went up on the windows <laughs> next to me. <laughs> Frozen three. I, Tom Hardy. I don't. I don't hate Tom Hardy. I don't he really says lots dislike of nice him. About you. Um, I. I just feel that. I feel that his own ego has kind of took control on too many films in the past decade. He's a could be a good actor if he would just stick to doing the acting and not trying to say, oh, well, if I talk in a certain way, this should be a great way to play the characters. And I've got a nagging suspicion he will play Bond like a poor Sean Connery. He'll suddenly put on a, a mock Scottish accent. The name's Bond, James Bond. So I, I don't want 
a hardy interpretation of Bond. And I've also got the additional problem with it in that it, it's kind of a rough-edged Bond. And haven't we already got that with Daniel Craig? Wouldn't it be nice if they're going to recast to do a whole new direction? Okay. I don't have a problem with, with, with Tom Hardy playing Bond. I, I can understand why he's on top of the list. It's not my choice. Far from it. But I, I wouldn't have a problem with Bond. And I think there's too much... There's too much machinery in the Bond camp to dictate where Bond goes and, and does anything particularly different because this is now the oldest film franchise of all. Uh, it's a family affair, and I don't think an actor coming in would be allowed to, to take the character off the rails. So I think we'd always be safe. We'd always get a Bond. We'd get, I mean, Daniel Craig's Bond is very different. Roger Moore's Bond is very different than Timothy Dalton's. Uh, Connery, etc., but he's still Bond, and I and I think that's it. My my choice, interesting because I get asked this a lot every time there's speculation on, on who's going to be the next Bond. The BBC will ring me and say, "Who's it going to be?" And I always come back at the moment with uh, two choices. One would be, I mean, is my left of centre choice, Jamie Bell. Yeah, he's now in his early thirties, so you've got Bond for uh, another couple of years. So, you know, by the time he sort of kicked it in, he would be, you know, he could be mid forties, which is which is a, which is a good age. And then my kind of sure bet, who I wouldn't think would make a, a, a good bond, would be Aidan Turner. You probably know from yeah. I remember him from Being Human, but Paul Dark. Yeah, I think he would be absolutely uh, spot on uh, as as Bond. He would be my ideal number one choice. Nah, uh, Steve Coogan. <laughs> playing Alan Partridge. Playing, playing Roger Moore. <laughs> Stop getting Bond wrong. You know, a few years uh, back, there was a lot of speculation <laughs> that Ben Stiller and Steve Coogan were going to make a Persuaders film. Oh, I, I could see that. Never happened, unfortunately, as we, clearly it never happened. But it was it was on the cards for some time that, that they were going to make a Persuaders film. In an alternate timeline, that film happened and it spun off a franchise. Yeah, successful somewhere. Yeah, Earth 62 or something like that. Um, so yeah, Bond will be sticking the release date at this point in time. That could change by next week. Who knows? But all I've got to say is that at this point in time, studios need to stop thinking globally about the markets and move back to a localized distribution. The US clearly isn't ready for film releases. No. Take them out of the equation, but let global cinemas that have opened get some product. Otherwise, they will force many venues that have been forced to open through for tenants to buckle through lack of product and thus lack of profit. Hashtag save our cinemas. What else you got? Uh, so Marvel news. Some casting news, I believe. Yes. Uh, so Kang the Conqueror is going to be the main villain in the next Ant-Man film. So not Mordok. Nope. Kang is coming into it. Now, whether he's going to be in charge of things or whether he's going to be a Thanos kind of thing, I think he's possibly going to be a Thanos kind of approach because I think this is going to be a, something that's resonating over the future of the MCU. And it's uh, Lovecraft Country's Jonathan Majors who is tipped to be playing the role. Good casting choice. Have you been watching Lovecraft Country? I have, yeah. I mean, I had my issues with the first couple of episodes. They felt a bit laboured. Yeah, a lot happened. It's kind of settled into a really good flow. Now it's got to the midpoint of the season. Yeah. And I'm, I'm intrigued to see how it's playing out because all the mystery is starting to like weave together beautifully. And the cast are great. And he is, oh, in particular, is fantastic in that role. Uh, for people who don't know who Kang the Conqueror is, he's a time-travelling villain from the comics who grew through the comics to be more a protector of the pure timeline. 
So his appearance may signal the direction that the next wave of MCU will take in. The time meddling of Endgame clearly had a ripple effect over the multiverse, which has drawn Kang to right the wrongs in his rather brutal manner. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Given it was technology from Ant-Man's side of things that led to the time travel, it makes perfect sense for it to all start in Ant-Man 3. Uh, and no pun intended, it kind of grows what Ant-Man is, because Ant-Man's been, I, I'm going to gonna have to go to all the cliches, was much smaller <laughs> in the... Uh, <laughs> In the Marvel MCU, than than the others, they weren't they weren't as epic, weren't as sweeping. There were smaller adventures. And this way, Ant Man can grow into something bigger. There's no way I could have said that any differently. <laughs> I was just thinking that. No, I'm sticking with it. Speaking of growing into something bigger, another bit of Marvel Ooh, casting. You are segue man today. On fire is the casting of She Hulk. Yeah, I saw this, and, and what great choice. What an absolutely fantastic choice. Tatiana Maslany has been cast in the role of the female version of Hulk, who's also a lawyer, who do, isn't as shy about her alter ego and isn't as brainless an alter ego as what the Hulk is. Yeah, so she's Jessica Walters, who's a lawyer. In the comics, she was Bruce Banner's cousin. Uh, and through a blood transfusion, uh, she ended up becoming the She-Hulk. Uh, and the She-Hulk has, and this is what Marvel do really well, and, and most comic, big comic groups do, but it's the smaller characters where they allow writers and artists to take chances. And so we've had uh, very straight superheroing. We've had sort of a, a very much feminist take on, on She-Hulk. We've had a, a, an outright comedy with the John Byrne, Dan Slott versions. You can do what you want with She-Hulk because she's not, she's not an A-level character. So I'm looking to see where they go with it. I think the casting is fantastic. So did you ever watch uh, Orphan Black, where, where she was uh, amazing? And I really was amazing, playing a different different characters or several different characters in a scene, let alone in, in, in one shot. And she played them all with a unique individual character and ticks and all those sorts of things that you believed in it. You believed she was a different person. She was amazing in it. I didn't get to see... Orphan Black, because this was one of the shows that whilst I was working, the wife decided to start watching without me. I had and that problem, so yeah, it, too. It was only once she was like halfway through the first season that I was aware that she put it on in the background. It's like, oh, uh, okay, you didn't want to wait for me. Uh, so I just tend to, tended to just like lie on the couch and just read whilst it's on in the background. But I might not have watched it because I, I, I thought I don't want to pay attention because I don't want to spoil it for me if I go back to start watching it. But I was aware of what were, like what was being performed, and I was aware of her as an actress, and she was amazing. You're right. I mean, because I kept looking up, and I was like, "Is that the same character?" She no, hey, what? What's, yeah. what's going on? No, I don't want to know. And then looking away. <laughs> so she really played like different characters' personalities brilliantly, and she was great in the recent Perry Mason as well. She was a, a huge part of that. Fantastic in it. So exciting casting. Um, I'd be interested to see if they go down the defence lawyer for the supervillains route, because I think that would be a, a great humorous approach to take for a TV series. But with the character She-Hulk, like you've already said, they can do anything with her, and they have done. I mean, she was a member of Fantastic Four as well yeah. at one point. So this is this is a big bit of casting. I've, uh, it's one of my most hotly anticipated TV series. Well, talking of which, it landed today, and that is Disney Plus's Wonder and Vision. The trailer is Se out today. Se we're segueing left, right and centre today, we aren't are. we? We're doing really well. It's like we're giving it some thought this week. What a trailer. I mean, it. we, we already knew it was going to have like a 50s sitcom aesthetic element there. Yeah, the, the I Love Lucy look. What we've now had it confirmed with this is that it's also going to have 
sitcom aesthetics from every decade in there, as well as the real world that's encroaching on this fantasy vision that Wanda has created yeah, so around herself. Where we left Wanda and Vision, played respectively by Elizabeth Olsen and Paul Bettany, uh, it was pretty traumatic. It appeared at the end of the Vision, at the end of uh, Infinity War, that somehow they she's managed to resynthesize reality uh, and and warped into becoming these sitcoms and, and classic televisions across different eras of entertainment. So it looks great. It looks it looks really interesting. It started off, and I'm thinking this feels really low key, and then at yeah. one point it sort of opened up and go, well. This is pretty big. This is uh, this is certainly got some scope to it. Looking forward to it, and it's announced that it's it's coming this year. Yeah, we we'd speculated a few months ago that a few of the shows were getting put back to next year, but this is one that thankfully we're going to get before Christmas. Yeah, because it looks so like the next something, one. Something nice for the end of yeah, something to look forward to. That's been the oh. problem, hasn't it? <laughs> having not having anything to look forward to because no matter what it is, it's always being pulled out from underneath you. Uh, and so yeah. this feels a, a, definite, um, a, a definite thing, something to look out to, uh, because it now looks that Falcon and Winter Soldier is going to be next year and has been announced yeah. for 2021. Uh, Universal have brought the Croods a new age forward. Croods kind of left me by. I only know it actually from the TV series because my, my son watches it. But other than that, I, I know what it is. Makes no, no impact. Ryan Reynolds voices a character in there, which is where my interest for this film came from. Initially planned for December the 23rd, it's now landing on November the 25th in time for Thanksgiving in the US, which hopefully will also be echoed worldwide with a November release. Now, for a family film, this is a wise move because every year, family films that come out in November do decent business on the opening weekend and then drop off, but then gain traction again halfway through December and carry through to January. So this is a marvellous move by Universal to go, well, if all the release dates are slipping and everyone's moving stuff, let's let's opportunise on that. And they have dropped this in to basically steal. This has come after the speculation that Soul might be going to Disney+, Plus, which is quite coincidental because Soul was due around about the end of November. Yeah, it needs something so to fill that void, doesn't it? Universal have cleverly just gone, well, if you're not having it, Disney, we've got it. Yeah. Peter Rabbit 2 looks to be its only real competitor, which... <laughs> I, th I still think that Peter Rabbit coming out just before Christmas seems bizarre because it seems like it should be an Easter film. Yeah. And, and it's, to some extent, it's, it's only really going to find its audience in the UK, probably Europe. It's, it's not a big hit. In, it wasn't a big hit in the States. Uh, and it's not really that much of a beloved character in the States. I thought the first one was 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 passable. My, my kid loved it. Absolutely thought it was hysterical. I just thought it was passable. Filming's resumed on the Batman. Oh, that's good news. Our Pats has been cleared. And everyone else who was placed into isolation, who'd been in contact with him, has checked out and all been cleared. So just before the weekend, filming resumed to get that film back on schedule and get it in the can so that we can hopefully, hopefully see it next year. And as we said, they were still shooting some sequences. They were shooting stunt sequences in the second unit. Yeah, so it was just the primary cast that they needed to make sure they would... Uh, be okay with it. Uh, Madonna's going to direct and write her own biography. Well, she knows her life better than anyone else, let's be honest. As she said, she wants to convey the incredible journey that life has taken her on as an artist, musician and a dancer, a human being trying to make her way in this world. The focus of the film will always be music. Music's kept her going, art's kept her alive. Uh, there's many untold and inspiring stories and who better to tell it than me? Now, my issue here, 
is that far too many biographies, when the person's still alive, end up being nothing more than puff pieces. They, they, they ignore any potential scandal. They ignore any anything that might make the person who it's about go, that's disgraceful. How dare you say that and take legal action? Well, she's going to make her own puff piece, basically. I can't see her going into the nitty gritty of the worst elements of her life. She's going to use it to showcase how she's risen from like the streets and become huge and successful. No, I want to, I want to know all the gossip. I want to know all the dirt. And also because she's going to be telling her whole life story. Again, this is something that I've mentioned before that biopics work best when they focus on a moment in that time, a small period. I would of time. agree with you. I would agree with you to, to an extent. I think if anyone's bold enough to talk about the darker points of a life, and, and actually could use it, you know, use it as therapy. Then I think Madonna making a film about Madonna is quite an interesting approach. That's never really been done before because, you know, you you don't get many, many superstars who are that invested in, in that. They're usually, as you said, after the fight. So I, I think she could bring something different to it. I'm one of those few people who really dislike Bohemian Rhapsody, I thought. I thought it was it was it was too glossy and didn't say anything and didn't deal with 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 any of the issues, but I did like um, Rocket Man a great deal because that was the heart of it was the fact that Elton John was an addict and and you couldn't tell that story without having that centerpiece that uh, of talking about as an addiction. So who knows? Again, speculating before the uh, film's even been shot, but. I think that she shouldn't direct it. In order to get some balance, she should get Guy Ritchie to direct it. (laughs) Moving on. I've got a little bit of news. Because I know you're a big fan. But Harry Styles, sometime pop star, sometime actor, made his debut in Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk and has recently been cast in Olivia Wilde's new film, Don't Worry Darling. He's now in the final negotiations to star in My Policeman, an adaptation of Beethoven Roberts' novel of the same name. And that is for... Well, I think that's for Amazon, from what I've heard. Cool. Um, I met him. He's a really nice guy. I met him at uh, a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame last year when there was a, a still a world. And he came across as a really, really nice guy in the couple of minutes I, I got to speak to him. I'm, I'm all for it. I mean, whilst Dunkirk overall, I felt, was like visually spectacular and quite underwhelming, he stood out as being, you know, everyone expected like, oh, here, here we go, another another young pop star thinking he can act. And Turns out he could. He could, and he played. He played a, a character who was morally ambiguous as yeah. well. So I'm, I'm intre- He's one of those personalities that I'm interested to see where he goes. So I'll be checking that out once it um, actually gets made and lands. And anything else? Yes, Nintendo are planning more game adaptations. Really? After Detective Pikachu found its audience, and so did their rival Sega's Sonic movie. It's no shock that Nintendo recently confirmed a Super Mario Brothers animated movie from Illumination who are um, responsible for the Despicable Me films and the Minions. Well, that'd work. And I mean, at least I'm not going to get a live-action Super Mario, because uh, that would be a stupid idea, wouldn't it? Why would anyone want to do that? <laughs> but they're, apparently they're also eyeing other game characters for potential outings. No doubt we'll expect to see more Pokemon adventures, because Detective Pikachu was such a hit. At this point, the company hasn't specified any particular franchise, but they've sowed the idea that they've got a lot of IP to work with. And I noticed this week that Uncharted has started production with Tom Holland. Yeah. Oh, I mean, we'll be talking about Tom Holland later on in one of the reviews. But what a great, what a great young actor. Yes. Looking forward to that. The Uncharted franchise of games. If you think Indiana Jones meets Tomb Raider, there you go. 
they're fun. They're really fun games. I, I thought the last one, the final one, was 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 excellent gameplay. I'm just going to quickly mention the uh, 2020 Emmy winners, only because as a geek, got to mention that Watchmen did really, really well on it, and, and deservedly so. It was a fantastic, fantastic yeah. series. Outstanding limited series. Outstanding limited series. Regina King for Best Actress in a, an Outstanding Limited Series. Yep. Uh, and, and Damon Lindelof and his team for Best Writers. Yep. Uh, and that's good because I think it finally proves that Damon Lindelof is a good writer and people should just lay off because Prometheus wasn't his fault. Yeah. Lay off the Lindelof. Yeah, there you go. I think that could be a hashtag too. <laughs> hashtag lay off the Lindelof. <laughs> it started here, folks. <laughs> yeah, um, Shit's Creek also did quite well out of the awards. Never watched it. I've got a friend of mine. He absolutely adores it. He, every time we're talking, he asks me if I've seen an episode, uh, and I and I haven't. And I must get round to watching it. I've heard it. I've heard it is hysterically funny. And Rick and Morty won the Emmy for outstanding animated program, which was a bit of a no-brainer. And also, Succession was another big scorer in multiple awards across the board, wasn't it? Yeah. Again, not a series I've watched. Um... I've heard very, very good things about it. Um, a kind of a take on a media-run family whose who's, uh, uh, patriarch is a familiar, if you like, media mogul. And uh, as fully expected, last week tonight with John Oliver got the Variety Talk Series Award, which he, he deserves it. I mean, he's been holding it's his own good. in a white room all year talking to himself. <laughs> and he's done a great job of still making it feel natural and fluid. So... Well done to all the winners from the Emmys. I know you're all listening. Yeah. Uh, remember to use the hashtags. <laughs> Which one? Which one now? <laughs> Every one of them. <laughs> Every hashtag now. The final news today is that Passion of the Christ 2 is still in the pipeline, according to Jim Caviezel. Yeah, that's going to be a, a heck of a return after yeah. the ending of the last one. I like how they left the last one on a cliffhanger. <laughs> I, I, I said when the first one came out in 2004, that last moment scene with him rising from the tomb, like all it needed was the Terminator music going, dun, 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 and it would have been perfect. Uh, but the film in 2004 made 612 million worldwide on a 30 million budget. And it's constantly been speculated that there would be another film. And apparently Mel Gibson has just sent the third draft of the sequel. So it is coming. It has got an official title, which we're not going to mention here because, uh, no, because we're going to speculate what we think titles should be. We uh, think um, <laughs> we're going to start putting on our Twitter feed uh, some polls and we would love you to join in. And we want you to title The Passion 2. Now, yours is... I've got a couple. I've got, Go for it. I've got Passion of the Christ 2, 2 Passion 2 Christus. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I've also got Passion 2, Electric Boogaloo. I've got uh, Passion 2, Jesus Takes Manhattan. <laughs> so uh, look out for our poll on Twitter. We'll give you the Twitter handle later. But yeah, what is your title for the Passion 2? We'll have, those, that... we'll have those ones up as the poll. And then the fourth option will be anything else. And you mention it in the comments for us. And that's it, ladies and gentlemen. That's the segment we like to call The News. So if you're a fan of the film Philo and a fan of this particular episode, please subscribe, hit that subscription uh, button and join us every week for a new show. If this is your uh, first time, recommend it to a friend. And if it's their first time, 
recommend them to a friend. Recommend your friend to a friend. Recommend friends to friends. We yeah. love doing this, but we can't do it without your support. And we uh, we need you to uh, just hit that button and also leave a review. Tell us that you like it. If you want to get in touch with us, as we mentioned earlier, you can do so at Filmfile UK over on Twitter. We're going to try and do more on uh, our, our Twitter feed, and Andy's going to say a little bit about that later on in the programme. In the meantime, and this particular part of the programme, if you're a regular, you know that every week I have been setting Andy a challenge. These are films that Andy has missed. For whatever reason, we're not sure. We have a team of scientists working on it day and night trying to uh, deduce why. Uh, in a segment we call The Films That Andy Didn't See, and yes, they're Oscar-worthy too. The film I said last week is Hannah and Her Sisters, uh, directed by Woody Allen in a time when Woody Allen ruled the world. There's something very lovely and real about Hannah. She gives me a very deep feeling of being part of something. Did you ever read this one? Elliot, don't! Lee, I'm in love with you. You mentioned to me yourself that you and Elliot were having some problems. You were having problems, and problems that are my business, which I don't see how you could know about in such detail. It's a good thing we had a talented daughter. I can only hope that she was mine. With you as her mother, her father could be anybody in actor's equity. Two months ago, you thought you had a malignant melanoma. Naturally, I, I, you know, I had the sudden appearance of a black spot on my back. It was on your shirt. I'm gonna cry. You want my husband to have a child with you? Yeah, don't answer now. Just, you know, take it home and think about it for a while. God, I should have married you years ago when you wanted to. I should have agreed. Oh, God, don't you know it never would have worked? It's an epiphany of the soul, I, if you know what I mean. I... No, I know exactly what you mean, Don. I don't know if you remember me, but we had the worst night of my life together. Uh, this is back in 1986, and this was one of uh, Woody Allen's forays into more drama and less of comedy, even though I do think this is uh, at times hysterically funny. It tells the intertwined stories of an extended family over two years that begins and ends with a family Thanksgiving dinner. Uh, the film was directed by Woody Allen, and it stars his then-wife Mia Farrow as Hannah, Michael Caine as her husband, Barbara Hershey, and Diana Weist as her sisters. It has an ensemble cast, which included Maureen O'Sullivan, Lloyd Nolan, who died four and a half months before the film's release, the great late Max von Sydow, the great late Carrie Fisher, Julie Kavner, Daniel Stern, Richard Jenkins, Fred Mellerman, Louis Black, Joanna Gleason, John Turturro, Julia Louise Dreyfus, Tony Roberts and Sam Waterston, who make uncredited cameo appearances. Andy, this was a huge box office success when it came out, regarded as one of uh, Woody Allen's best films. What did you think of Hannah and her sisters? Right, I have a bit of an uneven relationship with Woody Allen. You're not the first person to have said that, I'm sure. I, <laughs> I'm one of those cliched folk who preferred his earlier funny work. But I've also found some joy in his latter work of like recent decades. Midnight in Paris, for example, is an absolute delight for me. But during like the 80s period, it has what I refer to as navel-gazing witty dramas that could quite easily all be spiced together into a mishmash film and nobody would notice the difference. And this, for me, is one of them. It's, it felt decidedly average overall, but it's lifted by the cast that you mentioned. The cast are all fantastic in it, but it doesn't 
it doesn't resonate enough with me. It took me a while to get into it. I wasn't bothered for the first half of the film. And I think the problem that, uh, that I had with connecting with it is I was basically watching two Woody Allens playing on screen because Michael Caine is playing Woody Allen. Yes. There's always a Woody Allen substitute in, in, in a lot of his movies. Which I'm perfectly fine with because Midnight in Paris, Owen Wilson plays Woody Allen. But Woody Allen is also playing a neurotic version of himself within this film as well. And so it's like, oh, why don't you just have one character? What, why, why, do you, why do you have to play yourself and have someone else playing another version of you? This, this is too much, Alan. And whilst the neurotic version of him brings all the comic touches, I mean, there's some great one-liners when he does all his typical repartee of like just going off on tangents about subjects of philosophy, etc. And that's the Woody Allen that I've enjoyed. And so they're the parts of the film that lifted me up. But the Michael Caine aspect of it, I was I didn't feel it. I could I, I I don't know, it just didn't quite connect with me. It felt just it felt pondersome. I'm gonna agree with you. I'm a I'm I fall into that same category as you. I think uh, um, his earlier work, his funny work, will always be my favourite. And there are some absolute gems. Um, some of my all-time favourite films are in that, that early stable. And I have the same problem with Hannah and her sisters. I, I like it because I think I think it's incredibly well written. It goes through uh, that period that you you rightly describe as a little bit more a bit more serious. It was his Ingmar Bergman period. It was his reflective Russian dramas that he was uh, you know very Chekhov, very Anna Karenin that sort of thing. And it does work on two levels. It's got it's got the it's got the navel gazing side, and it does have the. Uh, uh, the wit of a Woody Allen film at the same time. I know that probably you and I are in a minority because this is regarded as one of his classics. It just never really appealed to me. Uh, it did incredibly well at, at the, the box office. It had an incredible critical reception. It just never really, really landed for me. Uh, the Guardian described it as the fourth best Woody Allen directed film. Uh, I would imagine that Annie Hall is his first one, and Annie Hall is sort of the key change film for where for where Woody Allen started to to experiment with with his more uh, more cerebral films. But this one just doesn't land for me. The cast are fantastic. There is it's wonderfully written. Michael Caine's good in it. Everything everything is good in it. It just doesn't land for me as a film. It just it just seems to fail, and I um, it, and I and I can't put my finger on why. Mm. Because I know every, I, we are, you, are, you and I are very much in a minority on it because it was, it's always been reviewed exceptionally well. I think while the cast were great, I, I did feel that it was lacking convincing chemistry between particularly Michael Caine, like with his obsession with his wife's sister. And the, the, the chemistry wasn't quite there to make that, that relationship feel believable where, as it plays out. It didn't quite gel. We needed the voiceover to tell us exactly what the thoughts were because it didn't seem to show in the presentation. It's it's not a bad film. It's just no, it's not at all. It's, it's not. just very average. I, I don't even think it's average. I think it's a very good film that, for for whatever reason, just didn't land for me on a personal level. I mean, I'm not I'm not huge on the works of Anton Chekhov. I'm not into into Russian literature, and and that's where it where it feels. It feels structured like one yeah. of those stories feels like a stage play it is very stagey and, and around that period woody allen's films did get very stagey because they're very very talky uh as i said you and i are 
in a, mi a minority because you know the reviews for it when it came out and still are fantastic it's in the the list of the yep. greatest 100 american movies ever made uh, interestingly it's in the list of the 100 funniest movies ever made and it's it makes me smile in places but doesn't make me laugh out loud in the way that other woody allen films do so actually we're, we're on the same page with this one the, the disc that i watched this from came in a double set with um ev everything you want to know about sex but we're afraid to ask so i slammed that in afterwards just to cheer myself up a bit more um on a, just on, on a side note then what would be your favorite uh woody allen film oh love and death again it's kind of underrated but it just i can watch it time and time again and makes me laugh every time again we're on the same page as far as woody allen goes it's absolutely spot on perfect i mean bananas is a very close second yep agree with that but but love and death is just utter perfection of managing to toe that line between like you know parody satire and just farcical humour. It seems we're in agreement on Hannah and Her Sisters by Woody Allen. If you want to check it out, it's the 1986 American comedy film directed by him. So for next week, Andy, and, and I'm I'm gobsmacked, nay <laughs> shocked, that you have not seen the film that I've chosen for you for next week. And I know, again, I think we'll be exactly on the same page. So your film for next week, Andy, is Sicario. And shame Excellent. on you for never having seen it. Okay, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I'll make you feel bad. Okay, so Andy and I have been to the cinema in the last couple of weeks, and we are giving you a, a big screen review. And that, of course, is Bill and Ted Face the Music. It's good to be back. Our dads are totally in trouble. Whoa. We can help them out, you know? Hey, so show us how to use the booth. Mm. We're putting together a most extraordinary band. This is serious, Billy Kamei. Oh, your musical acumen is most impressive, girls. <laughs> you want some Bill or Ted punk? No way! How you doing? We're in hell. But how you doing? We're, We're good. good! Bill and Ted face the music. So, Bill and Ted face the music. 29 years after their last adventure, Bill and Ted's bogus journey, life isn't going as planned for Bill, played by Alex Winter and Ted Keanu Reeves with both their bands and their marriages on the brink of a collapse. The duo are contemplating, well, doing that thing we all have to do at some point, grow up, until a visitor from the future tasks them with writing a song that will save the universe. Except they ain't got the song in them. Andy, you go first, because I know from the get-go we're not on the same page when it comes to this film. So this has been room, a film rumoured for the past few decades. The trailers were a warning sign early this year, and you'll know from when we on the episode when they first landed that I said that I wasn't sold on it, I didn't dig it. And the end result for me was confirmation that sometimes nostalgia is best left in the mind and never given form. It's nothing more than a mash of the plots of the first two films slammed together, offers nothing new, and very much like the recent Jane Silent Bob reboot, is more just a trip down nostalgia lane for fans of the previous films. Or similar to Jurassic World, which has to throw out, oh, look, there's the Jeeps from the first film to make you go, oh, I like the first film, and make you think that you're enjoying the film that you're watching. This is something that can be achieved a lot better by just putting Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure into your Blu-ray drive and watching it, rather than subjecting yourself to a mockery of the franchise. Anyone who's unfamiliar to the film so far, it offers nothing new as a newcomer reference. All the in-jokes will be lost on newcomers to the franchise. And the trailers were sold on the reunion of the whole gang, including Reaper, which turns out to be five minutes at the end of the film. It's less wild stallions for me and more concussed ponies. It sputters to a finale that looks cheaper than something in the Sharknado films. And I just felt 
I felt at the end of it that I have no intention of ever, ever subjecting myself to that piece of rubbish again. Yet I will happily watch Excellent Adventure and Bogus Journey over and over again until the day I die. Dude. It was just, it was just unnecessary. It was lackluster and it was pointlessly made. Dude, harsh words for Bill S. Preston Esquire and Ted Theodore Logan, who it once remarked the only true wisdom consists in knowing that you know nothing. <laughs> That's us, dude. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to take a different tie. I, I loved it. Now, did it make me laugh out loud? Uh, occasionally, did it leave me with a smile on my face for most of it? Yes, it did. And in these less than well-received times, <laughs> so we stand on the brink of further apocalypse. And that's, that's all it needed to do. It made me smile. Yes, it is a greatest hits package of what happened in, in the previous films. Instead of going back in time, they go forward in time. Uh, uh, instead of going back and bringing back historical figures, uh, Bill and Ted's daughters go back in time to bring together the ultimate band. You know what? And I didn't have a problem with any of it. I've heard some of the notes before, but that's what you get in any band. You get those, those recognisable tracks. And by the third album, you either do something different or you stay in the course. And they just kind of stayed the course. The fact that I like these characters... If, the fact that I recognise myself more than once in these characters as an ageing musician, I kind of got it. And any film for me that, that preaches hope through creativity and music, it's just, it's just going to leave a, a, a nice impression. It just made me feel warm and fuzzy. Yeah, the, the, the plot's absolute bollocks. It makes a jot of sense. But I didn't mind that because I, I just found them engaging and endearing. Uh, I didn't know where it was going to go. It never surprised me. But it, it just left me feeling warm and familiar in a way that I think right now in this kind of world that we're in, that's all I needed was to feel as though I'm part of that gang and feel accepted into, into that gang. Could there be another one? I certainly hope not. I think it's it's gone as far as it can possibly go. But it was, for me, a, a, the nice closing step in, in, in the lives of Bill and Ted, who, to be honest, they've always been kind of this slightly underdog films at the best of times. And it's, it was neither, uh, uh, it, it wasn't bogus, neither was it totally bodacious, but I had an absolute, absolute thrill being back in their company. And as I said, a film that can make me smile for uh, the lean running time of an hour and a half works perfectly for me. If there was one slight saving grace in the whole film, it's Samara Weaving as Theodora Preston, uh, who is far better than the film that she's in here. I like the daughters. I'd, I'd like to see more of the daughters. Not necessarily in a film form, but I could definitely see them go off and have a, a TV series based around them. Uh, and, and I would like it. I, I just, as I said, it, it did nothing more than made me smile. And, and really, the week that I was having last week, which felt bleak, that was the it's perfect antidote. It's just what I needed. Well, we d we disagree on that one. We do indeed, dude. We do indeed. Which is a, a, a most heinous thing to happen. <laughs> But um, one film that I'm going to mention now, I'm going to move on to a quick review for a film that you've not had a chance to watch, but I urge you to watch it. And that's okay. The Devil All the Time on Netflix. Landed last week. I know that much. Yes, it landed last week on Netflix. It's a crime film based on the novel of the same name by Donald Ray Pollock. And it's it covers the themes of evil, religion, suspicion and abuse of power in rural small town America. It's got a lineup cast that includes names such as Robert Patterson, 
Bill Skarsgård, Jason Clark, Sebastian Stamm, Tom Holland, Mia Wasikowska, and Hayley Bennett. Marvellous names, marvellous cast. I'm not going to talk about the plot because the, the story kind of meanders backwards and forwards between different people as their lives are intersect. But sometimes the lives don't intersect until later in the film. But it jumps backwards and forwards through time as well to flash back to events leading up to things and then flashing forwards. It's beautifully structured. It's got a pacing similar to films such as The Place Beyond the Pines, okay. which which was an absolutely beautiful film. I remember when that came out. But most of all, it's Tom Holland in a role that is startlingly different to what you've seen Tom Holland in. Is this the so start of Tom Holland's sort of journey into uh, adult adult acting, for want of a better term? Yes, definitely. You need to see the film to see exactly... Because we, we've spoken before about how great a young actor he is, yeah. but this is a perfect example of how versatile he is because it's too easy to think of him just as, oh, look, you're Peter Parker. But this shows you that he's got he can do darker as- aspects as well. And Robert Patterson... Again, people who still refer to him as that guy from Twilight, grow up, watch a serious film and watch this. Devil All the Time on Netflix now. So my review that opened on Netflix this week uh, was its first episode I've caught. Uh, the full series is there. And its ties are to, to bigger cinema because it works as a prequel to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And that's Ratchet. So set in 1947, former army nurse Mildred Ratchet, played by the ever magnificent Sarah Paulson who is just good in anything that she's in, uh, arrives at Lucia State Psychiatric Hospital in search of a job. Using all of her cunning, she managed to secure a job just in time for the arrival of a convicted multiple murderer, Edward Tollison. But everyone there is hiding a dark secret that will eventually turn the hospital upside down. So as I said, it stars the fantastic Sarah Paulson. And if you've uh, ever seen American Horror Story, by the creator Ryan Murphy, you'll know how good an actor she is. She is one of those who is, is an absolute chameleon, absolutely love her. I've got a huge crush on her, which always, always is a star. This is kind of sold to us as the before origin story of the Louise Fletcher character in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, who was a, a, a chilling character, who smiled passively and had a, a total lust for absolute control. But it was all very restrained and, and made her the more menacing. So with this, they've gone back to uh, a 1940s setting. It looks like it was a, it looks like a, a Douglas Sirk film. So if you know your Douglas Sirk cinematography, very bold primary colours where a character can walk down a hall and the lighting will change to reference their mood. You know, everybody wears primary reds or greens. It, it looks absolutely luscious. But the one thing it fails on is it's a Ryan Murphy project. And there was everything that, that, that Ryan Murphy brings to it. It's it has an abundance of sex, overcomplication. Every, there are more murders in this than there are episodes. It just feels like a lurid novel and, and totally misses the boat of exploring the Ratchet character. I don't think the Nurse Ratchet character ever considers herself to be evil or manipulative. And, and if, if so, then, then this origin story, I think we needed to, to learn how she became that character, what changed in her life. But to start the series, bang into the middle of her be, already being this manipulative character, just, just fails. Uh, I, I tried to shed some light on it. 
nobody ever sees themselves as a villain. Yeah. And I and and right from the get go, she's portrayed as a villain, not as somebody who is either seduced by the service that she's working in. She's already uh, already devious in the first two minutes of it. And so it, it doesn't really play as that prequel to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. If it had been called something else, I think I probably would have bought it more. But on the on the first episode, I certainly don't feel as though I want to stick around and, and follow this character through to the end. If you're not going to be watching any more of that, then next, this week on Netflix... Landing halfway through the week is Enola Holmes, which is Millie Bobby Brown and Henry Cavill's film based on the book series by Nancy Springer, focusing on the teenage sister of Sherlock Holmes. Now, this Netflix are expecting big things for. There's a whole series of books and they want this to be a franchise. They want the film to be picked up and the critics have responded well to it so far. So I'm excited for watching this one. So that's Enola Holmes. I believe it lands middle of the week. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, uh, she has just become a powerhouse just based on the fact of, of Stranger Things. She now gets to not only lead Stranger Things, she now has a franchise built built around her. She, for, for such a, a young star, she's yep. really, really uh, uh, creating a, a whirlwind of, a, of an industry around her. Um, also, there's a couple of older films. I say older, one of them's only from last year which are dropping on streaming services this week. So Netflix will be dropping the 2005 Waiting, which follows a day in the life of workers at a restaurant named Shenanigans as um, a new employee called Mitch gets introduced to the team and finds out what they all get up to to keep sane in such an environment. I love that film. Ryan Reynolds, Anna Faris, Justin Long, David Kochner, Louis Guzman all make it an absolute pleasure to watch. And anyone who's ever worked in the leisure or restaurant environment will identify with so much of this film. It's a great little film, and if you've never seen it, drops on Netflix this week. Whilst over on Amazon, Guy Ritchie's latest outing, The Gentleman, dropped on there this weekend. That only came out at the beginning of the year, didn't it? Uh, it got the back end of last year. Right. Uh, I didn't see so it. I've late. kind of fallen out of favour with, with Guy Ritchie. Well, this is a return to his gangster film kind of approach, and it's a cracking entry onto his CV. Ma- Matthew McConaughey, Charlie Hunnam, Jeremy Strong, Colin Farrell, Eddie Marsden, and Hugh Grant playing the best character Hugh Grant has ever played in his life. If you're a fan of um, Richie's earlier gangster films, there's a lot to enjoy here. If you're a fan of movies in general, there's some nice little subtle touches that you will really take a shine to. Thoroughly recommend it. That's dropped on Amazon this week. Talking of Amazon, I just caught the first episode of Stargirl based on the uh, DC Comics property. And so far, I'm only one episode in. Thoroughly enjoying it. Very colourful. I think the way that, that DC have taken these characters to put them on TV, they're sort of lesser known characters, certainly up until we start to see the Disney Plus uh, Marvel characters, certainly show this is how you do it. This is how to make uh, comic book characters with a lower budget work on the big screen. It's so much fun, Stargo. Yeah, I'm just one, uh, one episode in. Absolutely enjoying it. So that's our quick roundup of what you should be keeping your eye on on the streaming services this week. Okay, at the top of our programme, we told you that the film file is brought to you by the Devil T-Shirt Company. And you can own one of these delightful, amazing-looking, unique designs yourself by simply going to the Devil T-Shirt website. DevilT-Shirt.com Using the discount code FILMFILE2020, you can get an exclusive 10% 10% off your first order. And I got mine last week and I wore it all over the weekend. And I have photos to prove it, which I'll be sending to Andy 
so you can put it on our Instagram. You still enjoying your t-shirt, giving it lots of wear? Yes, it's uh, it's it has to get regular washes at the moment because I'm wearing it so much. <laughs> I think it's it's good for me because it's one of the few t-shirts I've got that's not a specific band t-shirt. And talking about t-shirts, uh, for those of you who know, I'm in a an Alice Cooper tribute band called Billion Dollar Alice, and the Devil T-shirt Company have uh, are starting to do our merch. And so if you go to their site, if you want to check out the Billion Dollar Alice t-shirts that are on there as well. I think you'll find that having a little bit of Alice close to your heart will just make your day go that little bit better. And that's it for this week. So before we go, as we usually do, Andy and I will tell you about what we've been watching, enjoying, reading, a million things that have just made us happy in a segment we call Our Neat Things. Andy, what's been your neat thing this week? So my neat thing is actually something that I do every Sunday night. Oh, between steady on, eight- sir. 8 p.m. and 9.30 p.m. Back away. That is, <laughs> that is movie talk on Sunday or hashtag MTOS. Now, this is something that ran for years with other people doing random ones, but I revived it a few years ago, just over two years ago. But over the past month and a half, it's not been running because I need to take some time to recharge my batteries, to get myself back in gear. And I, it returned this weekend for the movie chat. For those who don't know what MTOS is, it is what it's described as, movie talk on Sunday. One and a half hours, of which there'll be 10 questions based around a topic. So it could be horror films, it could be vampire films, it could be action films, it could be certain directors, actors, or just general cinema going or movie watching questions. And one question goes out every 10 minutes. And people reply to it by following the hashtag MTOS to find the questions and reply to each of the questions to engage film-related discussion of a positive nature. There's no negativity within there. You know, this community is all about taking the positive aspect of film Twitter and giving it an area to really talk and really chat. And the return of it last night, it was great to see so many people jump back into it straight away. Even though it hadn't been running for weeks, they were all clamoring to get involved again. And so I want to give a shout out to all the MTOS family uh, with particular mentions to the regulars such as Naked Airplane, Dennis Obi, Salty Red Popcorn, Grumpy Duck, Tavintino, Miss Kristen Ruth, Melin 607, Lizzie Go Lucky, Frank Glaze 27, Film Buff Baker. You guys make me so happy to be part of this community. You make my Sundays fun. And anyone who wants to join in, head over to Twitter, do a search for hashtag MTOS, and you'll be able to see all the questions that have been going out recently. Feel free to answer them now. You know, MTOS isn't just for Sunday, it's for life. Which I did this morning, actually, when I got up and, uh, and was magically drawn to Twitter as I am, I, uh, I uh, participated. The only rule that we have for people participating is that we will always differ on opinions, but we always respect people for their answers. So that's hashtag MTOS over on Twitter every Sunday, 8pm British time. Okay, fantastic. And as I said, I dropped into it this morning and it is, it's part of that film family, which is why we do what we do at the end of the day. Fantastic stuff. Okay, mine is back in 1997, there was a, a PC title uh, based on the property Blade Runner. I had this on a disc and I only had a, a demo disc and I never got to finish the game. But I remember it was fantastic. And for years and years and years, I've been saying, you know, they really, really should bring this back 
And it seems that Night Drive Studios have announced they're doing exactly that, bringing back Blade Runner, the enhanced edition. Andy, did you ever get to play Blade Runner? I, I didn't. One of my mates had it and would play it, but wouldn't let us have a go. So I've seen it, <laughs> and I always wanted to get it, but I never had a PC around the time that it came out. It was a fantastic game. Really captured uh, really captured what Blade Runner, Runner is. It's a, it was a... Um, a film neo noir story. Um, it it looked amazing for the time. Uh, it's now been enhanced, enhanced to a four K version. There is a, a video playing on YouTube which shows uh, the two clips side by side. Apparently, some of the um, some of the graphics have been uh, have been improved upon, uh, and the flow of the gameplay has been improved upon. I don't know when it's out. I am absolutely looking forward to it because it's for, as I said for years. I've been saying, you know what? They really should bring back that Blade Runner game. It was amazing. And it seems they are. And for me, that's a pretty much a neat thing. And that's it for this week, folks. We'll be back, hopefully, uh, same time, same channel. And look forward to discussing Sicario and whatever lands in our uh, our miss. You got anything planned for the week, Andy? Uh, working, mostly. Uh, <laughs> working and watching Eno- Enola Holmes. You know what? Sounds perfect. The key here, I think, is not to think of death as an end, but to think of it more as a very effective way of cutting down on your expenses. Okay, just give me a second, because I've uh, scrapped my notes. I've scrapped them. <laughs> I tore them up in frustration when you were slagging off Bill and Ted. <laughs> <laughs>